from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But find out, do me a favor, favor. Let me in here Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of light First of all, I'd like to say f*** you, Sultans of Oman! You suck! I especially hate Saif Ibn Sultan, who ruled from 1692 to the 15th of October in 1711. What a scumbag! Arr! Attention listeners, I don't actually hate any of the Sultans of Oman. That's a private joke to Bob. Don't let them hear this on your iPod, Bob. Uh, yeah, also, uh, Chicago Teachers Strike. Oh my goodness, what's going on with that? This should be in current events and or education, but it's not. So let me say a few words about the Chicago Teachers Strike. Um... I stand with them in solidarity. Look, a lot of the news reporting about the Chicago teacher strike has focused on the fact that they're unhappy with the methods of evaluation. And, and some people look at that and say, oh, what the heck? Who is opposed to being evaluated? The, the, the problem, first of all, the actual technical details of that delineation are this. The, 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 the Chicago, the government of Chicago and Rahm Emanuel want to take testing on state and federal standardized tests as 40% of a teacher's evaluation. The Chicago Teachers Union wants to limit it to 25%. So it's not as though the Teachers Union is saying, oh, these tests shouldn't be used, or we shouldn't be evaluated on test scores. They're not even saying that. I might say that, but whatever. That's a different question. The point is, the Chicago Teachers Union is recognizing that maybe they can't eliminate these tests, and maybe they don't want to eliminate these tests as a measure of how good a teacher does. How well a teacher teaches, I should say. As an English teacher, it's necessary for me to speak in a way that is accurate. Blah, blah, blah. But here's the point. Look, the Chicago Teachers Union is obviously fighting for a lot of different things, okay? And Rahm Emanuel, first of all, this is a very interesting thing I learned. The Chicago uh, uh, School Board is appointed. They are not elected. So one of the things that Chicago Teachers Union in general, like overall, not about this strike particularly, but overall, they're pushing for is a more accountable school board system. What a shock, right? Most school districts around the country have an elected school board. Now, that doesn't automatically fix every problem or make it you know, um, a democratic system because there are a lot of people on elected school boards who act in non-democratic ways and yada, yada, yada. But uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that there has this been an explosion in charter schools uh, in Chicago, and as at, at the same time, there has been a weakening of unions of teachers around the country, and those two things are important to look at together. It's not as though one caused the other, and I'm not a person who says, oh, charter schools suck, absolutely not, man. Uh, and in fact, as I've said probably on this show, uh, charter schools were, uh, there, there were some teachers unions, including the AFT, that were very instrumental in pushing for charter schools early on on as 
uh, locally controlled ways to adapt to student interests and community needs in a more nimble way than your standard public school model. However, in Chicago and other places, a lot of charter schools have been successful in part because they have been able to uh, hire non-unionized teachers. And as a result, there tends to be a lot of turnover in these charter schools. And the, the takeaway from that is that they tend to be cheaper to run. Okay, So if we have unions demanding a living wage for teachers over here, but we have the option of charter schools getting rid of that demand for a living wage, using teachers as if they are cogs in a machine that can be swapped in and out, never mind institutional memory, never mind about what experience helps a teacher to do in terms of classroom management and covering the material and relating to students and all sorts of other things, that stuff's all irrelevant according to the business model of reform, and as a result, you have a very money-focused uh, set of reforms that are being pushed very heavily and that's one of the things that the Chicago Teachers Union is resisting with great strength and great skill and I, I'm very nervous about the idea of schools being closed I feel really sorry for parents who have to scramble to get health care, uh, daycare a lot of parents are scrambling to get health care too but that's a different issue zing um, and as I said, when, when our schools were closed in Sun Prairie for a day in February of last year, uh, you know, I, I felt horrible about basically saying to parents, I'm sorry, you got to, you know, sort of deal with these kids. And in Chicago, it's been like a week. Uh, and, and, and so I, I think that's something that teachers ought to recognize that, you know what, look, we have been given uh, the sacred trust of these parents to take care of your kids all day and not just take care of them, but teach them and help them grow and give them the tools they need to succeed, not only as human beings, but in the marketplace as well. Um, so it reminds me of The Simpsons when Homer goes, stupid teachers trying to foist off our own kids on us. And Lisa says, but dad, by striking, they're trying to affect change and make a more democratic workplace. And Homer says, yeah, Lisa, if you don't, come on, if you don't like your job, you don't go on strike. You just go in every day and do it really half-assed. That's the American way. So I've got a lot of other things I could say about the Chicago teacher strike, but if I start running my mouth about everything I'm thinking there, I'm going to run out of time. Instead, I will just say that I was very happy to see that the uh, Madison.com uh, printed my letter uh, to the editor about Maggie Gyllenhaal's new movie, which I ranted at you last time I did this podcast, uh, the, the, the Don't Back Down or whatever it's called. And uh, yeah, it was, it was cool that they published my letter. I think they published it in the entirety. Now, the Capital Times is the sort of, there's two publications. Um, well, it used to be there was two newspapers in Madison. There was the Capital Times and there was the Wisconsin State Journal. However, the Capital Times moved to a one-week, one-day-a-week-only publication schedule. So basically, they're not a newspaper anymore. They're sort of a, you know, kind of a, ma a weekly magazine or whatever. I mean, it's a news magazine, but it's it's only once a week. So that letter is on the website uh, of Madison.com, and I'll publish a link to it on the show notes here. But uh, yeah, people should take a look at my letter because I'm awesome, and they they agree that I'm awesome, so they publish my letter. Anyway, um, what else is going on? Uh, this movie that. Uh, Okay, so these schmucks, these morons, these idiots in California made this anti-Islam movie. And it's all about how Muhammad the Prophet in the movie is this fool and this murderer and this pedophile and this bigamy. I mean, all this, you know, stuff that's in designed to incite anger and it's supposed to be revealing the truth about Muhammad and Islam. And it's just this stupid, you know, attack smear thing. It's just ridiculous. Uh, it was designed to incite anger. Well, guess what, kids? Mission accomplished. 
And so as a result, as you probably know, there have been massive protests and outrage and people attacking in Libya, the Benghazi, uh, in Benghazi in Libya, the U.S. embassy was attacked and the U.S. ambassador as well as this uh, assistant from the United States were killed. And there were people in the um, Egyptian uh, security forces have been fighting against the protesters and there's been all sorts of violence in various places around the Middle East and I think that's just ridiculous because look don't get me wrong as I say the people who made the movie are schmucks and idiots and scumbags but to go attacking people at an embassy because of a movie you don't like I think stupid like what the hell are you thinking and besides look here's the thing in Oz there's a point where uh, Minister Saeed is talking to this guy who used to be a gangster and I don't remember his name but he was like the coldest gangster ever, and he was the most heartless killer, and he killed this couple on their wedding day. And he converts to Islam while he's in prison. And Minister Said is talking to him, and, and this one dude is sort of making fun, this other prisoner is making fun of uh, their, you know, sort of Islamic faith. And, and the former gangster steps up, and he's trying to beat the crap out of him. And Minister Said pulls him aside, and he goes, look, Allah does not need you to defend him from a moron. So what about that? angry Muslims around the world, do you really think that your God is so insecure that he needs you to rise up and anytime anybody insults him, immediately start attacking people and burning stuff down? Now, don't get me wrong, I reckon, I mean, I'm always hedging my bets, like, wait, I'm trying to think, what if somebody who is a, a passionate believer in Islam is listening to this podcast? First of all, I know that's very unlikely, but if it did, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint Islam with a broad brush, I know this is a tiny sector of the Muslim world, These there are hotheads in every faith, right, there's idiot Christians in the United States, Fred Phelps and what have you, uh, so, you know, they're, yeah, they're everywhere, and, and I'm not going to try to judge all of Islam based on these morons, but, hey, morons! Step it down a little bit. I think Allah can, you know, punish the wicked himself. As uh, Salt and Pepper said, I mean, let's talk about sex. Uh, every, no, it was none of your business was the song. They had this line about, you know, oh, you say you're doing the work of God, uh, but you know what? God can punish sinners himself, so chill and let my father do his job. And that's kind of how I feel with this whole hullabaloo. Like, people are like, we have to defend the honor of Muhammad and, and Allah. And I'm like, dude, look, I bet Muhammad and Allah are powerful enough to defend themselves. They don't need you burning stuff down and killing people as a way to say, don't insult our God. Um, yeah, whatever. And besides, it's not good recruiting, is it? I mean, maybe it is. Maybe there are places where people look at that and they're like, wow, that looks like a cool way to spend my days if, especially, let's bring in the cultural and the class perspective here and the transnational uh, econo economic perspective. If in these institutions, like in you know, rural Pakistan, if there is no school, there is no economic opportunity, there's nothing going on except maybe you'll get killed by a drone strike, well, maybe joining a jihad makes sense, right? Now, again, it doesn't mean I'm excusing it and all that stuff. Blah, 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 back and forth, whatever. Okay, Moving on. I got one last thing before we actually get to current events. You're talking about current events now, dude! No, I'm, this is the prelude to the current events section. Keep up. Uh, every day I get these emails talking about election campaigns, and this is coming up, and the email is from, like, Joe Biden. It's like, please send us money. I'm like, really? Joe Biden sent me this? I don't think so. I think it's a robot claiming to be Joe Biden, and I wouldn't want a robot claiming to be me. What's up with that? Oh, this robot is my proxy. No. But here's the point. Look, election campaigns... I want to support, for instance, Elizabeth Warren. We'll talk about her in the economic section. Elizabeth Warren is running for the Senate in Massachusetts. Okay, I, I've sent her some money. I incur, I, I support her, you know, run for office. But I only have so much money. And if every email you sent me is just about, hey, send me money, 
that that demeans me as a member of a democracy. I'm sorry. As a citizen, I'm more than just a freaking ATM for the candidates I like, right? So here's the thing. Election campaigns, why don't you occasionally ask me to do things other than send money or share things on Facebook? There's more to a democracy than just sending money and sharing stuff on Facebook. It horrifies me to think that that's what we've been reduced to as members of a democracy and citizens in a republic is that all we're supposed to do is give money and share things on Facebook. That's it. No, it's not. There's lots of other things we can do as well. And I'd be willing to do some of those other things. But 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 I don't like this. So it feels like these campaigns are often reducing our role as citizens to just following orders. And this connects to when we were out campaigning for encouraging people to vote to recall Scott Walker. Uh, there was no dialogue with anybody that we went to see. It was just about, here's this focus group script. And they kept saying that people who were organizing the the you know, walk around and campaign and thing. They gave us a script and said, this script has been focus grouped over and over again. It's the best way to communicate with people. And I'm sorry, look, as a person who goes out to talk to people and as somebody who spends his days talking to people in terms of trying to inspire dialogue and get people to open their minds and think about the world differently, I can tell you I hate talking to people that way. And as an individual who is intelligent and, you know, as Dead Press says, why don't they tell me the truth? I can think for myself. Everything they manufacture would be so bad for your health. Uh... I don't like being approached with that point of view of like, here's this script. The focus groups say you will like it. And because then what if I don't? Then what am I, a weirdo freak? I'm an outlier. Malcolm Gladwell, tell me what kind of person I am. So it's just stupid that election campaigns have all been reduced to this series of formulaic processes and, and number crunching exercises that basically boil down to who can spread the most social awareness on the social 2.0 networks and who can raise the most money. Because it's more than just that. I'm sorry to say it's more than that. Okay, Democracy is more than that. And that's the other thing that really bugs me is that every it's just about winning an election and that's it. But, of course, it's about a lot more than that. It's about what policy we enact, and it's about how people look at things, yeah? And those things aren't really measurable, but they're really important. So, hey, Democratic Party, why don't you broaden your scope of what we can do as your base? Uh, so current events, I got two things in the actual current events file, but first I need to add a note here in my show notes. Give me a second. Yeah, so that way I'll put a link in the show notes to the movie that the Chicago Teachers Union put out, which is very interesting. It's called The Truth in Black and White, and uh, it covers a lot of the other issues that aren't really being addressed in the media about what's going on in Chicago and all that other stuff. Anyway, two things in the current events file. Number one, from the PB&J element, uh, police brutality and justice. There's this new uh, thing that happened in Maryland, um, at Prince George's County. Uh, the headline is, Cop Claims Teen Assaulted Him. Video shows he assaulted teen. Uh, here's an excerpt from the article. <clears throat> Prince George's County, Maryland, police officer Corporal Donald Taylor, a 13-year veteran, claimed that after catching up to an aggressive youth who swung at him and began to flee, the youth reached for his gun, at which point he fired his gun at the youth in self-defense. Despite this tale, newly released surveillance footage obtained by Fox 5 News shows the officer running up behind the youth, then smashing him in the head with his gun in a surprise attack, which triggered his gun to fire in the process. 
So um, I, I don't want to be one of these people who says like, oh, look, the video burns the police officer. Let's put him away forever. But I do think, obviously, this is a very important piece of evidence that, you know, when the trial happens, uh, I would like to know uh, what happens with it. But, but, but more to the point, I think, there, there's a tendency among a lot of police officers to say, well, this is what happens. And everybody instantly and automatically and completely believes what the police officer says. And unfortunately, we can't trust that. Right? It's not just to say, well, the police officer said it, therefore it happened, and that's the end of it, right? Because if a person has been arrested or a person is a suspect in a crime, they are they are suspicious, we can't trust anything they say, and therefore you only have two points of view on a thing, well, you're going to trust the police officer because he's up here. I mean, and don't get me wrong, police officers should be respected, they should be revered, they should be trusted to an extent, but the idea that anybody who is you know, accused of being involved with a crime is immediately suspicious and can never be trusted. Well, that's just nonsense because as we see in this instance and many others, there are instances where police officers will say one version of the story and then we'll get another version through video feed or through an independent verification or some sort of eyewitness or whatever it is and it's a very different story and that's not cool. So, hey, cops, step your... Again, like this fantasy I have of there's these police officers listening, whatever. Uh, whatever. Be, be, be skeptical of everything everybody says and let's not always take cops immediately at face value. Um, all right. Uh, another item in the current events file is from the Rock Against Republicans folder. Uh, REM orders cease and desist against Fox News. This is from rawstory.com. The American rock band REM on Thursday demanded that Fox News, quote, cease and desist using their song Losing My Religion during its coverage of the Demo- Democratic National Convention. Quote, we have little or no respect for their puff adder brand of reportage, lead singer Michael Stipe said about Fox News. Our music does not belong there. And uh, this is sort of echoes what uh, Silver Sun Pickup said about Romney using uh, their music during his campaign event. And then, um, of course, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine put out a statement in Rolling Stone about how uh, Paul Ryan should definitely not be listening to their music. Well, I mean, not that he shouldn't be listening to it, but that he doesn't understand it and that it's bogus for him to be consider himself a fan of Rage Against the Machine because, as Morello says, uh, uh, Paul Ryan is exactly a representative of exactly the type of machine we are railing against and raging against. And I should have said raging, but I said railing, so what am I going to do? I should say, before we move on to economics, that I'm talking a mile a minute. It doesn't sound like you're not feeling well, Eric, but you know what? I'm not feeling well. It's Saturday, and this should have come at the beginning of the show. I know. Um... This is my one day off. Like Sunday is a day for us to grade papers. A lot of teachers spend a lot of their Sunday grading papers, and as a result, Saturday is really my only day off. Um, And and I recognize that I'm lucky to have that day off. I know people who work 50, 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks, and that's just insane. As I've said before a million times, leisure is a guaranteed human right under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 24. Look it up. Um, But the thing is that if I feel bad on a Saturday, if I have a headache, as I do today, you can't tell. I know. I'm, I'm soldiering on, man. I pull the mask down tight. But when I have a headache on a Saturday, I feel like, no, I'm being robbed of my only day off. And then there's this entitlement thing where sometimes on Sunday I'll be like, well, I deserve to take some time off and play video games on Sunday because I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't have a real day off on Saturday. I wasn't feeling well. So, yeah, sense of entitlement comes out. And I don't like it, but 
I also feel like, dude, check it, man. I got like 30 kids in every class. I got 125 papers to grade, and every week there's more coming in. And and then there's all these pressures about, you know, our unions being disbanded, and and then there's all these business model reforms that say it doesn't matter how many kids are in a classroom. You know what? Tell it to my Sundays, okay? Come here and grade some papers with me. And then let's talk about whether it matters or not how many kids there are in a classroom. That's just stupid. Of course, you see, look at the schools they send their kids to, and it's like, oh, our class sizes are capped at 20 everywhere. And you're like, oh, gee, what do you know? You want that for your own kids, but you say to other kids, it doesn't matter. And then, yeah, Hungary is saying no to the IMF. It's really funny because I saw two articles about this. The one I'm actually going to quote from is from the Wall Street Journal blog about Hungary seeking to change the IMF credit terms. But the other one that I saw, it was some other very small website that didn't have the same, shall we say, pedigree as the Wall Street Journal. And uh, so the, hard, the headline was like, IMF ki uh, Hungary kicks IMF out of the country. And I thought, what? That sounds sensationalistic. So to see such a different perspective on the story from the Wall Street Journal, and don't get me wrong, I understand the Wall Street Journal has certain perspectives and biases that causes them to write their headlines a certain way, but I don't really think it's fair to say that Hungary is kicking the IMF out of their country. That's a pretty ludicrous way to go about saying it. Anyway, it is interesting, nonetheless, that you see, you don't have to sensationalize it. It's interesting enough by itself, damn it. Um... Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said he will present a brand new set of terms to the International Monetary Fund and the European Union in upcoming aid talks. If the lenders insist on the conditions currently on the table, he said, the deal is off. Now, that's a remarkable thing in and of itself, because it's very rare that you have countries saying, especially poorer, smaller, less powerful countries, saying to the IMF, we will not just do whatever you tell us. Because if we learn anything from the protests of the WTO and the IMF and the World Bank gatherings in Qatar and Mexico City and other places, we know that 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 very often what these powerful international uh, monetary organizations do is that they they impose rules on smaller, less wealthy, less powerful countries around the world. And there's a great documentary film called Life and Debt. I will put a link to that in the show notes, uh, to the trailer. I don't think I can find the whole documentary online because it would be illegal. But there's a really good, you should totally find this documentary film, Life and Debt. It's a fascinating look at what happened to Jamaica when they accepted these terms from the IMF, and I think it was the World Bank, um, and it was all about like this crushing restructuring of their economy that destroyed farmers, especially subsistence farmers, and it didn't make life better for the vast majority of people in Jamaica. But it did provide a lot of wealth to the IMF and the World Bank because they got interest and they had a, a reorganization of the Jamaican economy such that it didn't bother taking care of their own people. It just looked at growth rates and interest rates and the stabilization of the currency and all the rest of it. So a lot of us in the protest movement have said, if the IMF and the World Bank and the World Trade Organization are going to be at all relevant, especially to the so-called developing world, they need to be implementing policies that benefit the majority of the people 
in those places. Not just a tiny wealthy elite and the transnational corporations and banks that benefit from the changes that happen in places like Jamaica and Hungary. So it's cool to see the Prime Minister of Hungary taking this stance and saying, no, we are not just going to take whatever terms you demand that we follow. Instead, we're going to try to find a compromise that benefits the people of Hungary, but also stabilizes the economy and, you know, currency and whatever, all that bond stuff that I don't really understand, but clearly doesn't necessarily benefit the vast majority of the populations in those countries. But here's the interesting thing of this article, I think. I mean, that's one interesting thing, but here's the other thing. <laughs> the next sentence in the article says, Mr. Orban used his Facebook page Thursday to cause an upset by posting a video message in which he stated that the terms for the 15 billion euro safety net package presented to the government by the EU IMF go against the country's interests. <laughs> and I just love the idea that it's sort of a Jesse Slaughter type video. And he's like, um, hello, it's Orban here. And I'm just like here to say that uh, I'm just awesome and Hungary is not just going to roll over. And you know what? EU and IMF, if you insist on these terms of the upcoming aid talks I'm going to pop a Glock in your face and make a brain slushy, okay? Because I'm not rolling like that. And then the IMF and the EU are going to like troll Hungary and be like, you're going to take our conditions! And then like, the the I don't know, does Hungary have a king or whatever? Like some, the equivalent of the father of Jesse Slaughter will come in and go, you done goofed EU and IMF! I have gotten in touch with the police and consequences will never be the same! Uh, meanwhile, the uh, policymaker Ewald Nowotny from the European Central Bank uh, has called for a high-frequency ban uh, trading ban, not a restriction, a ban. He said it should be banned. Who is Ewald Nowotny, Eric? Uh, I don't know. I've never heard of him before. He doesn't have a whole lot of power. But uh, still, this was important enough for Reuters to do an article about. Uh, so Ewald Nowotny, the European Central Bank policymaker, called on Thursday for a regulatory ban on high-frequency trading, saying that the technique of using computer algorithms to generate multiple high-speed trades has no practical value. Quote, with high-frequency trading, there is nothing to be regulated. It is to be banned. There is no really demonstrable net advantage from this form of trading, he told a panel discussion at a regulatory conference. So there's another voice of reason saying that this stuff doesn't benefit the markets. It benefits the people who are doing it, and they'll find a way to try to justify their existence. But really, it's just, I mean, you know, look, the casinos in Las Vegas can find ways to justify their existence, too. But in the end, it's just about making money. That was that rare glimpse of awesome humanity in Supersize Me when Morgan Spurlock's meeting with the guy who's suing McDonald's because they're like false advertising, they're entrapping kids and all this other stuff. Uh, and so Morgan Spurlock asks him, uh, and this is a guy that Morgan Spurlock basically agrees with, or at least he's trying to give him a platform to speak his mind and share some important points of view with the audience. The guy, Morgan Spurlock's like, why are you pursuing this case? And the guy goes, oh, you mean besides the money? Uh, you're looking for like a, a moral reason? Um... <laughs> he doesn't have one and he's so awesome the way he admits that it's like oh you mean besides the money like uh i don't know and that's the thing is we never see high frequency traders we never see the imf or the eu or the world bank having those same moments where they're like oh you mean more than just money i don't know that's why i love reading the business press is because business week and, and the financial times and you know the business pages as chomsky's often said they're the only place where the business community talks to other people in the business community and they assume that the 99% aren't reading it so they're just like we can say whatever we want 
So as a result, for instance, we have this article from Business Week that I was busting up laughing in class, and the students started going, Mr. P, what are you laughing at? And I was Because they're writing in their journals and stuff. And I was ostensibly grading papers, but really I was reading Business Week. And I was like, oh, let me tell you this thing I'm reading in Business Week. And it was actually the Scott Brown article. And I, they were like, you have to show us. And I was like, all right. And I pulled it up, and I read them the quote, and they were just sitting there like, what? <laughs> it's hilarious. They're like, that's not funny. I'm like, yeah, well, I'll pull up a Family Guy clip later, and you'll laugh at that, won't you? Anyway, so here's the article on Business Week. The other one that made me laugh was the headline is Hooters, fun for the whole family. Now, for those of you who don't know, Hooters is a strip club with a little more clothing. The women, wear, first of all, the women are all hired based on their breast size and their ability to carry trays uh, and, and their hotness. Uh, and, and, um, the, the outfits are these like skin tight t-shirts and these tiny little shorts. Okay. Now I remember when I was in college and then when I first started teaching, I was making fun of Hooters at one point and this, this one student, and I had a friend who said this in college too. They had this, they were angry. They were offended. They were like, that's a family restaurant. We go there all the time. And I'm like, oh my God, are you serious? It must be all son, all boys as children. And then the mother must be just like, oh God, I can't believe we're here again. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to speak on behalf of women who go to Hooters. I'm just baffled by them and I, I have to expect that there is at least a, a significant percentage of the women who go to Hooters who are sort of dragged there by guys who kind of act like Michael Scott. You want to know how you ought to think about Hooters? Think about the office, okay? The American office. I don't believe the British office ever mentioned Hooters. But Michael Scott on the office in the U.S., he loves going to Hooters. He goes there all the time and all he does is giggle and make jokes about chicken breast. <laughs> and Jim is there and he's just, he's been dragged there by by Michael, and he's just sitting there, Jim is the whole time going, oh God, when can we leave, this is so embarrassing, and he comes back with, you know, the Hooters t-shirt or whatever that Michael bought him, and he's just like, oh God, and it's an inside joke, it's like he's laughing at Michael for being so taken with this idea that you can have lunch or dinner in what is basically a strip club, but as, as uh, but it's good food, apparently. They, everyone always starts with, well, the wings are so good. Yeah, people go there for wings. Chris Rock said, no one goes to Hooters for wings. And he also said, Chris Rock had this thing about uh, people, guys who are addicted to strip clubs, the people who eat at the strip club, as he eat it at the buffet. And he goes, how could you eat at a nasty strip club buffet? Go to Mickey D's. Are you that hungry? Damn, Rwandan refugees won't eat that shit. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what Hooters is, but apparently it's better food. But that's not why people go to anyway. Okay, so here's the article. The article is all about this new CEO who is trying to make over Hooters and make it more appealing to everybody. So that was, and all these experts are just hilarious. Uh, it's easy to see why some women are creeped out by Hooters. Gee, you think? I can't imagine. I would have thought lots of women would love going to. I mean, don't get me wrong. Ten percent of the female population probably loves going to Hooters because you know that's statistically the number of uh, uh, women who are attracted to other women, but it goes without saying that a lot of those women probably are repulsed by the objectification inherent to the Hooters business model in the same way that I am, so it's probably like 5%, whatever. Uh, the chicken wing chain known for buxom waitresses and tight orange shorts, the wall-to-wall dark wood, posters of bikinied Hooters girls, the tables of titillated guys downing pitchers of beer and making cracks about the chain's great wings makes for a decidedly frat house vibe. Yet Chief Executive Officer Terry Marks's Makeover of the ultimate guys' place depends heavily on paying more attention to its core customers' wives and girlfriends. So check it, ladies. They're trying to appeal to you. Don't worry. It's 
going to be awesome. Marks, a former Coca-Cola bottling executive hired last year to redo the chain, wants to remove the Hooters stigma. The Hooters stigma. So men aren't embarrassed to put a visit to the chain on their expense accounts. Yeah, why would a guy be embarrassed to put... The, apparently a lot of guys aren't embarrassed to go there. Uh, and women aren't so quick to veto a meal there. Quote, face it, females are 51% of the population, says John Gordon, principal at Pacific Management Consulting Group. They've enjoyed more employment growth, and you can't ignore them. So, yeah, we just got to find ways to appeal to them. How are they going to appeal to women, you might ask? Asking the waitresses to put on a few more clothing? No. <laughs> Hooters is still mostly for guys who make up two-thirds of the chain's customers. Marks insists that Hooters will remain every bit as sexy and that the iconic uniforms will stay. Instead, I am not making this up. Instead, he's concentrating on freshening up the menu, which drew yawns from female diners on research panels. Here we go again with the focus groups, and next we're going to have the cross-platform focus where we have democratic strategists working with the Hooters platform or the research panels and they'll be like, ladies, if we had sexy chicks bouncing around in front of a candidate but they were also advocating health care, would you be more willing to vote for them? And then guys would be turned on. And so the, the campaign would remain every bit as sexy and the iconic uniforms would stay. They're also going to create a night scene and bringing more light into the restaurants because that's really the problem. Women aren't like, oh, really? I'm supposed to go eat my lunch at a strip club? Well, if it's dark, no way. But if there's a freshened up menu and there's more light in the room, I'm there! Quote, There's an opportunity to broaden the net without putting wool sweaters on the Hooters girls, says Marks. So again, the whole the supposed problem is that we have a bunch of prudes who think that the female body is shameful and therefore they don't want to eat at Hooters! But... That's that's totally not the issue. You people are so stupid. Quote, everything we do should appeal more to women, but nothing we do will turn men off. So how about this? Let's put a bunch of guys, and let's start with this Marx fellow, the CEO. Why don't you get out there in a thong and serve some bread to the women, and then we can have everybody engaged in some awesome objectification, and you can have, like, scenes from Fifty Shades of Grey on the wall next to the bikini babes, and then it'll be just like, the hot, slippery dining spot. Ugh. Later in the article, the chain has doubled the number of salads to six, replacing iceberg lettuce with mixed greens and adding shrimp, spinach, and fresh herbs to give women and health-conscious men more choices. Because <laughs> health-conscious men were going to be like, uh, Hooters, you know, it's not so health-conscious. And now they're going to be like, ooh, let's go to Hooters. Um, hey, Diane likes fresh herbs. Maybe she'd want to go to Hooters now that she hears this. Attention, Duchess, when you listen to this, we are not going to Hooters. I don't care how interested you are in this new expanded menu with more salads and fresh herbs. I am still not interested in going to Hooters. So don't even bother asking. Later in the article, Chief Marketing Officer Dave Henninger says National Football League games and Ultimate Fighting Championship mixed martial arts bouts are huge draws for couples. Because <laughs> if there's one thing... Look, I'm sorry, I teach English, which tends to be a field of education that has more women than men in it. So I, I teach in, in the pod that I teach in, it's all women teachers. So when we talk at lunch, the number one topic inevitably is Ultimate Fighting Championship. That's the number one. Every day we... Oh, dude, did you see the Octagon last night? Me and my husband were all up on that. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> I've gotten, and again, don't get me wrong, I, okay, maybe some women are into ultimate fighting, but that's not really what I think about when I think what's a huge draw for couples. Oh, I know, ultimate fighting championship. Let's go, and again, Duchess, I don't know if you've been listening to the research now, but apparently it's a huge draw for couples, but I'm not interested in it. So don't start asking me if we can start watching ultimate fighting, okay? I'm not going to get cable just for that. Um, and then at the end of the article, there's uh, Business Week always has this like summary. It's a TLDR. Business Week has in every article at the very bottom, it's called the bottom line. It's a TLDR. Uh, four years of revenue declines have forced Hooters to revamp its appeal. Women, even fully dressed ones, are welcome. <laughs> so there you go, ladies. Here's what they think about you. All right. Um, one last thing in the economics section has to do with Scott Brown and Elizabeth Warren. Scott Brown's a fascinating individual. He's a Tea Party darling. Sarah Palin was all up on him. He's a real renegade, and he's going rogue. And blah. Um, Scott Brown is the rogue. He's a sports guy. That's been his whole thing. Um, and, and now he's being challenged by Elizabeth Warren, who is the most awesome financial analyst for the people that's come along since Brooks Lee Bourne. Elizabeth Warren is just super cool. If you can find here, I'm going to put a link to Elizabeth Warren's speech at the Democratic National um, Convention because her speech was awesome. And uh, she's just a cool person. You know, if you see her on The Daily Show, she's talking about how in the 20th century, after the Great Depression, we had this boom and bust system leading up to the Great Depression. And then after the Great Depression, we realized we have to put some constraints on Wall Street and the speculators so that we don't have this boom and bust every 10 years. And it worked. We had a long period of time when we didn't have that boom and bust cycle. And, and since we've eroded those regulations, we've seen a return of the boom and bust system. And that's exactly where we are now. And we're currently in a recovery from the last bust. And it'll start to boom again soon. I mean, some banks are already booming. But because we haven't put the new restrictions back on, we're going to enter the same thing. We're going to have a crash, just like the one we had in 2008. It'll probably happen around 2020. Um, but it will happen because we haven't changed the system. And she knows that. And she's speaking that truth to the people. And she's trying to make it into the Senate. And it will be important if she can make it into the Senate. Um, so here's the thing. Here's some excerpts from the article. She makes every... This is the thing that made me laugh in the middle of class. You, this is a quote from Lawrence McDonald, a former Lehman Brothers trader and co-author of A Colossal Failure of Human Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, he, and he recently hosted a fundraiser for Scott Brown on Cape Cod. Quote, she, talking about Elizabeth Warren, she makes everybody feel good about financial reform because of her resume. Harvard, former bankruptcy attorney. You think she gets Wall Street, but she's never taken risk. What? In every financial crisis, you have a pendulum that swings, and she literally is that pendulum. What the hell are you talking about, Lawrence McDonald? That makes no sense. She is that pendulum? What does that even mean? Unless you're talking about the drum and bass group pendulum. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 uh. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, I love pendulum. What can I say? But, uh, yeah, it's, I don't even know what that means. The, what, literally that, she is that pendulum. Uh, and then later on the article it says, if Warren is a pendulum, Brown is a pretzel. Because <laughs> he's contorting himself, trying to figure out how to appeal to the population. Brown has raised $19 million during the 2012 cycle, with the financial services industry giving the most. And it's not that they love Brown and what he does and stands for, because he voted for Dodd-Frank. We'll get to that. Uh, but they hate Elizabeth Warren. They can't stand her. 
now, who is Scott Brown? Well, uh, Scott Brown spent much of the first Senate campaign driving around in his pickup truck and calling into radio shows to gab about the Red Sox. Although, because this whole thing is, I'm a sports guy, and the article starts with this description of him playing basketball, and it's a metaphor for his run against Warren. Although the truck, it later turned out, had been purchased to haul his daughter Ariana's horse around rather than be used as his daily ride. So imagine that. A a, a politician's using their children as a prop in their campaign for office. (laughs) Boo! So Sarah Palin, don't give me that. Well, you know, yeah, of course Sarah Palin's going to say Scott Brown's a good example of a, you know, family man, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, the truth is that, yeah, it's whatever. Their kids are props. And I can't wait for some of these kids to come up. I'm waiting for Chelsea to talk about my dad used. I mean, but see, that's the thing. Bill Clinton, I'm not going to try to create some false equivalency between Democrats and Republicans here. Because I don't think Democrats do it that much. Clinton didn't use his kids as a prop. Chelsea was just sort of there. And it was like, she's my daughter. Don't talk about her. That's it. He didn't trot her out at every campaign event and stick the mic in her face and like, eh, why don't you read the Pledge of Allegiance? And eh, I'm going to kick off my campaign at my kid's birthday party. Eh. Sarah Palin did that, in case you didn't know. Yes, she did. And she put her baby on a Right to Life poster, so uh, gag me with a spoon. Anyway, back to Scott Brown. Later in the article, uh, in July 2010, Scott Brown voted in favor of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Bill, which created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which Elizabeth Warren had championed, and mandated rules to regulate derivatives and deal with failing banks. Okay, as I've said before, Dodd-Frank was a tiny set of baby steps. It was a good bill. It wasn't nearly what we needed to do to reform Wall Street in the wake of the 2008 disaster, but it was a good bill. Uh... Brown's support of the bill, which most Republicans opposed, was the deciding vote. So, okay, I'll give him credit. Yes, he voted for that, and it was the deciding vote, so that's cool. However, the next sentence says, however, he used his vote to extract changes that financial institutions wanted made to the Volcker Rule, a central aspect of the legislation that limits proprietary trading for FDIC-insured banks, giving them a little more wiggle room, as Barney Frank puts it. Uh, Now, okay, look, here's the thing. In and of itself, that doesn't make my blood boil. Okay, look, yeah, people are going to try to compromise and find ways to say, well, I'll vote for this, but only if you make these changes. That's the way Congress ought to function. However, uh, if, if he's only voting for it as a way to force these concessions, it can make the legislation null and void, and it seems like that's what happened. In June 2012, uh, emails between Brown's legislative director, Nat Hoops, and the U.S. Department of Treasury came to light, showing that Brown had continued to lobby to loosen the rules as they were being written. And the article has lots of details about what specifically was addressed in this lobbying, and it just makes me sad, because again, he gets to look like this renegade who's like, I'm going to stand up for the people by voting for Dodd-Frank, but behind closed doors, he spends all his time trying to weaken that legislation. So it's one thing in public, one thing in private, and it kind of makes me sick because Elizabeth Warren's record shows that she says one thing in public and she does the same thing in private. She fights for consumers and for the little guy uh, in in office or, you know, in the Consumer Protection... She was supposed to be the Consumer Protection Bureau's um, main person, but the Congress, the Republicans said absolutely not. They refused to let her in and they wanted to try to defund that bureau and and all these other i mean they've got so many tricks wall street is so good at trying to find ways to weaken regis- regulation and and uh 
and it just it kind of makes me sick. So uh, Elizabeth Warren's awesome. Scott Brown sucks. Everybody in Massachusetts, all my listeners in Massachusetts, uh, uh, fanatical uh, anti-U.S. Muslim uh, activists, please don't. This doesn't apply to you and all the police officers who are listening. Unless you're in Massachusetts, this doesn't apply to you. But those of you who are listening in Massachusetts, uh, vote for Elizabeth Warren. Let's talk education. Uh, yeah, thanks to the Duchess. I only have one actual article in the uh, education file this week, but um, yeah, I've of course talked a lot about other education things. Um, yeah, anyway, the Duchess sent me this article that uh, it was an opinion piece from uh, American Federation for Teachers president. That's the teachers union. There's two. There's National Education Association, NEA, and then there's AFT. And the president of the AFT, President Randy Weingarten, uh, wrote a piece that was picked up by a lot of different news sources, including the uh, uh, Capital Times in Madison, called Right Wing Agenda Drives Movie on Education. And it's about Maggie Gyllenhaal's movie that I talked about before, and then I wrote the response to the Madison.com Capital Times uh, organization as a way of saying thank you for publishing this thing from Randy Weingarten. So in her piece, Randy Weingarten says, uh, talking about, and she did a good job of getting into the question of the parent trigger, which is what the movie revolves around. In real life, there have been only two attempts to pull the parent trigger. One never made it to the approval process. In Adelanto, California, where the trigger petition is still in progress, many parents report feeling deceived by the for-profit charter-backed organizers who came in to gather petitions. They actually sued to take their signatures back when they found out they were being used to give their school away to a charter company. And that's a really important piece because, again, I don't want to be dismissive of parents who are angry about the way their school is being run, and if they think that the parent trigger action might be the only recourse for them to give a kick in the pants to a school bureaucracy that they feel is not responsive to their needs, I I empathize with that, and I don't blame them for being angry about that, but I'm worried that a lot of parents are going to find themselves in this same situation, just like a bunch of schools did when Edison came to town, like 10, 15 years ago, and they're going to be used by these shysters who are trying to get paid behind this parent trigger movement, and they're going to regret it later on and it's very hard for me as a teacher and a union thug to say don't trust those people they're trying to play you for saps and you're going to regret it that sounds like something that a union thug and a teacher who's trying to protect his own backside would say okay i get that but on the other hand i'm right because it does happen and and your kid might end up in a much worse situation if the model from Louisiana comes to pass in your school district and suddenly instead of kids not getting the one-on-one attention that they need and and having, you know, teachers who don't care about them, suddenly you might find your kid sitting in a cubicle listening to a record about how evolution is the only theory that explains where platypuses came from. Uh, excuse me, creation is You really screwed that one up, Piotrowski. I was on a good roll there. <clears throat> Uh, back to Weingarten's piece, Davis's character in the film asserts that union rules prohibit teachers from working past 3 p.m., an egregious lie. So there's half-truths in the movie, there are things, there are criticisms, I'm sure, I haven't seen it yet, but there are criticisms of unions that are probably valid, like, you know, look, and, and let me let me go ahead and take an aside here to say something that's really important, okay, look, and I've probably said this before, so I apologize for repeating myself. Some people complain that unions protect teachers who shouldn't be teaching, and and I don't know of teachers like that. Um, 
and and especially because I, I don't sit in on those classrooms. I don't observe those teachers regularly. And it's very easy to say, well, this person has low test scores. We should get rid of them. But there are so many reasons why kids don't do well on standardized tests. It's not fair to just look at those test scores. We have to look at what the teacher is doing, right? That's That's the key. And it's very hard to look at a teacher's practice in an effective, thorough way, unless you do a lot of observing of that teacher. And, you know, most most administrations just don't have the capacity to do that. There's like 100 teachers at a school. How are you going to observe them on a regular basis? Now, this is where I think listening to students is valid, but it shouldn't be the only thing because there's biases and reasons why students might give a certain perspective. They have a situated knowledge. The teacher has a situated knowledge. It's very hard to determine, you know, who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job. A lot of t- kids will say, I'm doing a good job, but <laughs> that's just because in some cases, you know, they their only homework is to read for half an hour. So they just like the fact that they don't have, you know, worksheets they have to do or whatever it is. Um, but but that's not kind of beside the point. So so is the question of, okay, are unions protecting bad teachers? That's one part of the question. But here's the other part of the question. Are unions protecting good teachers? And that deserves just as much attention as are unions protecting bad teachers? Because Surely, everybody who says, oh, we got to get rid of the bad teachers, hopefully, they would all agree that we have to protect good teachers, not just for the benefit of the teachers, but for the benefit of the kids. And and the sad truth is that unions do that. And without due process, without the protection of, uh, 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 you know, some sort of series of steps that schools have to take, there will inevitably be uh, shortcuts taken and, 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 and egregious uh, actions that are carried out. Just It's just the nature of the institution. I'm not demonizing. And as I said many times before, I'm lucky to be in an awesome school district with a great administration at the school level, at the district level, uh, very supportive superintendent, all that. So this isn't about me personally or, or even, you know, what we want as a union locally. It's about the institutional structures that, that you know, just as we need a Congress to prevent the executive branch from, as it inevitably will, exercising undue control and gaining undue power, so too do we need unions to protect against undue power acquired by certain parts of educational infrastructure. That's the way it works. And the same is true about, you know, private sector workers. Management is going to grab every bit of power that it can. That's just the nature of management. It's not demonizing CEOs or attacking the wealthy. I'll do that later. Uh, but what I'm talking about here is an institutional structure that says, look, this is the way capital works. They are going to demand every amount of you know toil and blood and sweat and sacrifice and overtime and extra bit of work and a schedule you can never predict and 80-hour work weeks unless there's a counteracting force. And, and unions have historically been the only real counteracting force that has been effective in a capitalist society. So that's why we need them. And there's a lot of talk these days about how we're in a post-union society and unions are lumbering dinosaurs and they're too bloated and you know all that. And those may be valid criticisms, but but the fact remains that they ex- they 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 need to exist on an institutional level because they serve to protect those basic worker rights: forty-hour work week, uh, paid vacations, you know, worker safety, all that stuff. Uh, and without them, I'm sorry, management's going to run roughshod over those rights. Period. End of discussion. 
Um, yeah, so where was I? Weingarten's piece, last bit I'll quote here. The film features the union leader sharing a quote that anti-public education ideologues and right-wing politicians often attribute to former AFT president Albert Schenker. Quote, when school children start paying union dues, that's when I'll start representing the interests of school children. Yeah. Despite the frequency with which corporate interests claim Schenker said this, a review of news reports, speeches, and interviews with Schenker's aides and biographers, and even an analysis by the Washington Post, failed to find any personal report that could corroborate the statement. So, just as it's not fair to say that Dan Quayle once said he wanted to brush up on his Latin before going to Latin America, he didn't say that. It was a comedian who said that. Now, the interesting point about that is, Dan Quayle said so many other things. He really did say so many other things that were stupid and ignorant and moronic that no one that, that we could confuse the two, right? No one would if if someone said Barack Obama said that, everybody would just go, "No, he didn't." Cuz that's not something Barack Obama would ever say. That is something Dan Quayle might say. And maybe that's something Shanker would say, I don't know. But but the point is, I'm going to stand up for Dan Quayle in that one instance cuz he did not say that he wanted to brush up on his Latin to go to Latin America. And also I'm pretty sure that Sarah Palin never said I could I'm good at foreign policy because I can see Russia from my house. That I believe is what Tina Fey said when she was parodying Sarah Palin. Um so, you know, credit where credit's due and, and, and all that, and it's not fair you know, this movie it looks like from everything I've seen, it's a it's a smear piece against teachers and it's a way to get people to be uh, you know, and uh, again, I don't want to say here's what the intention of the filmmakers is. I don't want to try to speculate that. I don't know what that is. The effect this film is going to have is making a lot of people angry at unions and teachers. And you know what? We have enough people hating on us for various reasons. We don't need more of that. Please let it go. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh, listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? That sample is long. I need to find a piece of music that works instead there. Maybe I'll use the Humans Are Dead from the Flight of the Concords. Affirmative, the humans are dead. Because music works better as a bridge between sections, I find. Anyway, uh, yeah, Jason, thank you very much for sending me this piece. Uh, the headline from IGN.com is, Chef Robot is, quote, better than a man. And that reminds me of the Mad TV sketches with Mrs. Swan, which got old immediately, but they were funny once, where the only thing she ever says is, when she's describing somebody, he looking like a man. And and it's like, what does that even mean? So, whatever. Anyway, uh, Chef Kui invented by Beijing restaurateur Kui Rungguan is a $2,000 robot for Asian noodle bars. A motorized arm modeled after windshield wipers cuts fresh noodles faster and more evenly than most human workers can. Uh, Chef Kui was expressly designed to eliminate jobs, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Slicing noodles all day would probably be pretty tedious and exhausting. As Rungguan explains, quote, young people don't want to work slicing noodles, end quote. Duh, yeah, absolutely, that's awesome. Now, here's the question for me. The wealth that had been going to people doing that boring, monotonous, rote task of slicing noodles, that's now entirely going to the inventor of this robot and the people who own the noodle bars. 
the question is, will that will those people who used to do that boring, dull job, will they be able to get some other job now? Or is it just going to be like mechanization puts people out of work and that's the end of the discussion? Because I'm all for robots doing the horrible, boring work, but only if the wealth that is then saved is distributed to everybody. That's what needs to happen. That's the utopia we should be working in. People shouldn't be picking up trash. Robots should be doing that. But the people who used to be trash workers should be able to find other work that's more fulfilling and not just, well, we have a robot, we don't need you. And that that's one of those fundamental splits, so I don't know, whatever. Uh, and then finally, this is more miscellaneous than killer robots, but there is a new bit of research that came out, the Telegraph reported on it. Airplane is the funniest film ever, research finds. Airplane came out on top in research conducted by a panel of members of movie subscription service Love Film. They calculated the precise number of laughs a minute for the top ten comedies chosen by Love Film members. The panel recorded the total number of times each film generated a laugh before dividing it by the film's total length in minutes to calculate the precise laugh-a-minute rating for each movie. With laugh-a-minute score of three, Airplane beat nine rival comedies to top the list which had been created to mark The Hangover becoming available to stream on Love Film Instant. Uh, yeah, so scientific methods of determining what's funny. That's a way to go. Now, it happens to work in this case, but I dare say there's going to be some other movies that generate a high laugh per minute thing, and I will look at it and go, I don't understand. Like on The Simpsons when Homer is going, he gets the crayon out of his brain. He's a lot smarter suddenly. And he goes to the Julia Roberts movie, and the name of the movie is Love is Nice. And it's just this string of buzzwords. Like, uh, uh, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded husband? Like, I do. It's like one groom, two grooms. Oh, And Homer's like, I don't get it. That's not funny. And everyone in the theater is laughing. Like, wait a minute. Someone's not laughing. It's him. And Homer's like, this, don't blame me. This movie's tired and predictable. You know she's going to end up with Richard Gere. And and everyone's like, oh, I thought she'd wind up with that rich snob, ably played by Bill Pullman. It's Bill Paxton, you fool. And then someone hits him with the board. Take your plot holes elsewhere. Um, yeah, so science as a way to determine what's funny. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, uh. This week I'm going to tell you about a video game that has to do with hip-hop. Because in 1996, let me make sure I got that year right, uh, 2006, no, 1996, sorry, it came out again on the PlayStation Portable in 2006, but the original release date on the PS1 was for Parappa the Rapper, uh, which was an awesome video game. I played it over and over and over and over and over again back in the day. Um, it was the, a, an early rhythm game, and this was back in the day before you had to buy a different peripheral for every rhythm game you played. Uh, this is before DDR, I'm pretty sure. This is before Rock Band, this is before DJ Hero, before all of that. Uh, and, and the way it worked was, you had this main character named Parappa, who's this cute little dog, and he had this beanie on with the frog on it, and the whole thing was, I gotta do what? I gotta believe! So it was this cool sort of uplift message, but he's this poor kid who's trying to win the eye of this, you know, woman, girl that he's hanging out with, and, and meanwhile there's this rich dude who's trying to impress her, doing everything perfectly, and he's just, I'm just an ordinary dude, what can I do? Yeah, I know, I gotta believe! Now, the interesting thing about the game, aside from its brilliant story and the, the the plot like occasionally they'd be like suddenly they're driving their car in space and then suddenly there's a moose teaching them how to drive it's just the most ludicrous it was probably designed people who are on drugs for people who are on drugs don't do drugs kids except caffeine and you know alcohol later on when you're 21 um but 
the point is that it was weird, but it was also cool because the way it worked was, okay, you'd have the, there, there was always a, sort of an instructor, uh, you had Master Onion who ran the dojo, who sort of taught you how to rap in the very basic forms, and then later on you'd be learning how to drive or selling things at a flea market or baking a cake, the sample I will play you in a moment, and, and, and so for each of the, like some part of the line, you would hit the X button or the O button in time with the music. So at one point, for instance, you were making a cake, the sample I will play you in a minute, it goes crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. You would have an X for each time the word crack came up, and then you'd have a, a circle for the egg, and then you had the square button for bowl. So you'd be sort of hitting it in time, and okay, that's a cute enough mechanic, but the thing is that it totally worked because the music was good. I actually listened to some of these songs on a regular basis because they're kind of funky. So let me play a bit from the part where you're making a cake uh, with the chicken. Egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. M-I-X the flour into the bowl M-I-X the flour into the bowl Baking a cake, yes, means you gotta try I'm doing this for years, but don't ask me why Butter, butter, butter joins the bowl Butter, butter, butter joins the bowl We're making us a cake that you've never seen before We're making us a cake that you've never seen before yeah, and there's a lot of sort of repetition going on because it's about trying to get in time with the music and stuff like that. But it was really cool, and the music was kind of funky. Now, the weirdest part was at the end. Because at the end, for some reason, Parappa really has to use the bathroom really bad. And so he goes to this gas station, and the, there's a line for the bathroom. And all of the masters who have been helping you out along the way, the onion dude who taught you in the dojo, and the moose that taught you how to drive, and the, the frog who teach, helps you to sell things at the uh, flea market, and the chicken to help you make the cake, they're all standing in front of the bathroom, and you have to have a wrap-off to determine who can go to the bathroom next. So the whole rap is about going to the bathroom and it's really weird but it's also kind of funky so here's the frog who's in my prince flea swallow he is the coolest dude in the whole game his song about working at the flea market is really cool and then here's his verse about having to go to the bathroom So I don't know what that means. That I got no time to spare for what? Going to the bathroom? Um, and eventually, of course, you win that rat battle and you get to use the bathroom. And he goes to the bathroom, and they show—they don't show him going to the bathroom, but they show a, a, <laughs> a rocket taking off, and then Parappa like a cutaway of his stomach, and the rocket's taking off, and then Parappa goes, "Ah, this is life." So. So there you go. There's the piece of hip-hop history for this week about going to the bathroom and a video game from 1996. Sun Ra was an American jazz composer, piano player, and poet. He lived from 1914 to 1993. In uh, the liner notes to his 1966 album, Concept Tones for Mental Therapy, he wrote, quote, proper evaluations of words and letters in their phonetic and associated sense can bring the people of Earth to the clear light of pure cosmic wisdom. So there you go, people. Go and pursue some pure cosmic wisdom. Ah! 
That's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week to Lucas Dushak for the excellent conversation on Facebook about a lot of different things. Uh, Shoutouts to Bob. Sorry for if, if what I've said has gotten you deported again. I hope not. You've been through so much, and I hope you're finally able to uh, catch back up with Anna and have some good times in Dubai and stuff. Um, Shoutouts to the Duchess. Don't even ask if we can go to Hooters because it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. Shout-outs to everybody who sent me things. Jason Gallagher and Stu sends me things on a regular basis and other people. Uh, I really appreciate the feedback. Questions, anything you want to send, please get in touch with me. Uh, ESP at FBESP.org. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. What can I say? I'm a very busy man. Uh, you're going to have to deal with it, okay? Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. i got a lot of stuff i got to get done. Yeah. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. And I didn't even talk about the ruling about Walker's stupid horse crap. Take that, Walker. You got ruled against. Uh, what? Also, everybody should listen to my brother, my brother and me. It's the funniest podcast that's ever been made. The McElroy brothers are hilarious. That's all I've been listening to. I'm sorry, Tavis Smiley and Bill Moyers. I ain't got time for Ain't nobody got time for that. I, got, I only got time for the McElroy brothers. My brother, my brother, and me. M-bum-bam. It's awesome.